0: We are going to be in 44, by the way, if you notice, it's kind of, um, there's extra seats today, which is good, because a lot of our class is actually moving to the membership class, which starts right after this, so that immediately puts pressure on me to be done on time, Um, but that'll be taking place after this class in this room. Normally, we won't be in this room, but today we have to be, because Morgan needs the room we're going to be using, so... um, We'll be in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, going to all the way through the end of 45. Um, And probably to to crack open the subject before we actually start reading through the text, um, I think it would be helpful to process out loud, and we have a few verbal processors in the room, um, to process out loud some of the ways that... um, Our worship is conditioned by the way that we live. Um, How do we, you can teach yourself to love things. Did you know that? Like, it's not just a feeling. I can teach myself to love things. Um, In college, I learned to love just black coffee. Like, I hate putting sugar, creamer, anything in there. It tastes like a hot milkshake. I don't like it. Um, I learned to just love black coffee. But it's an acquired taste, right? Like with so many things, there's an acquired affection for them, and so I actually wanted. So let's let's take let's keep it almost on the low shelf there for a second. So this is a relatively benign affection. Like this isn't going to shake my world to find out one day that loving coffee is wrong. Okay, what are some other things that we have learned to love over the course of our lives? Guinness. Guinness. So an acquired taste for his Irish beer. Fast cars. Why, why, did they, why did you have to learn to love that? Did you just like it? or So time spent with it, develop, it increases your appreciation for them. It increases your attention to detail. Your understanding about them increases, and therefore your love increases. What else? Healthy food. Healthy food? Yeah, you too have really had to learn to love that. Um, so you, you switch to healthy food for dietary reasons and then eventually like the palate will catch up, right? For the most part. Yeah. For the most part. I still want a pepper. You're have to... Yeah. Like Scott Irwin's done this before, right? He's talked about um, going on a um, a sugar detox and then he complains. He says, like, it's amazing. There's sugar in everything. I can't find anything without sugar. But he's Yeah, you guys kinda live this existence. And he said he said it was, it was horrible the first week or so. And then like my body felt great. And then I got to the point where I didn't want sugar. And then when I had sugar again, like it made me sick. Like he had trained his body to love something else. What else? Running. Running, that's another one, yeah. I still don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> but you hear stories of people that do, right? Yeah. Family gatherings. <laughs> I've been to your parents' house. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we not got there yet. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Technology. You've had to learn to love technology. Um, some people have to learn to love the simplicity of doing without. Um, and all of these things, like you can really ask someone, hey, tell me some of the things that you love, and I can find out a lot about you. I can find out where you'll invest your time and your resources and where you're going to be patient. Um, like It requires patience, obviously, to learn to eat eat differently. It requires patience to learn to love running. I really don't have any plans to ever get to that point, but (laughs) it's a discipline, right? As as with any exercise-type stuff, any any physical conditioning is an acquired affinity, an acquired affection. Um, And over time it will start to shape who you are. And, and this is where I think our passage today is going to be really helpful as it starts to talk about idolatry because idols aren't in and of themselves attractive, but I can learn to be attracted to them. And if that's the case, then I can learn to be attracted to something greater than that. So like my follow-up question to what, do you lo- like what are the things you've learned to love is um, what are the things you couldn't do without like, give me your list of non-negotiables. Um, for many, it would be my kids. Like, I could not fathom life apart from my kids or my spouse or my job. You take away my job and I will die. Like, I, I will just kind of crater in on myself. And if we're honest, we've, we've learned to love those things to such a degree that we're, in many cases, worshiping them. And Isaiah is going to criticize those who would worship actually handmade idols that are probably the ancient version of what we all imagine an idol is a little statue. Um, I don't know if you've ever been into like a Hindu temple. They're just these ornate, um, in terms of craftsmanship, beautiful. In terms of what they represent, horrific looking idols just in the walls. And I remember being in Toronto actually with Jim and we went um, because that's what pastors do. They go to Hindu temples and... We sat at the back of the sanctuary and just watched all these people like bowing down to these things that were, I think, made of porcelain, probably. So that's what we imagine, and that's kind of what Isaiah attacks, but I think that we need to be sensitive to recognize that we would never be so foolish as to bow down to something carved out of wood, like Isaiah will describe. But we will bow down to our children, even if it doesn't involve actually becoming prostrate. We'll bow down to um, relationships, to um, success, to security to possessions, to jobs, and it can be really difficult to help people see that in themselves until I ask them, what could you not give up? Like, if I could, take, if I could just, like, ransack your life and take away these things and you, ha- you never get them again, like, do you, like, is that the end of you? Do you just come undone? And now, this isn't to say that we don't have affections and loves rightly appropriated. Like, I shouldn't, like, want my kids to go. I shouldn't want my wife to be gone. I shouldn't want to be fired. But if, like, if, if, if when those things—here's a good question. We we actually talked about this in a staff meeting. I think it was a staff meeting. Um, if my son died tomorrow, like, have I all of a sudden hit my limit in terms of my ability to still thank and praise God? Or is that the point where I like I can't stomach worshiping God anymore? If that's the case, then my God was three years old and he just died. And that that's that's telling. Like if if, if I now like, so get get depression and the normal stages of grief off of the off the table. But like if if my relationship to God, if my worship with him is contingent upon him protecting and preserving my progeny, then my kids are my gods. And, and it can be hard to see that, but Isaiah does a masterful job in these particular passages, these two chapters, just exposing how foolish that is. And not by putting down the idols, not by telling me that a three-year-old is not sovereign or powerful or all-knowing. It's not by telling me like, how bad he is, it's by just saying, like, but you do know there's something better. And these chapters will go on and on about God's sovereignty and his power and his might and his mercy and his authority as it relates to the fact that he made everything. And so he's just like, you, you'll see these contrasts between what's, what's been made and by whom. He'll draw our eyes to statues that we make. He'll just say that's foolish. And then he'll immediately start talking about God as the one who makes. And he's like, remember when I made you. Like, remember when I made everything else. And so, a good question when it comes to idolatry is to ask the question, who is the ultimate owner of all these things? So, let us crack open Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. This is um, in, in response to what we, what we actually covered last week. Um, when... When Israel, you see this lawsuit motif as God is put on trial and he is himself vindicated and he starts to mock the um, pagan gods and mock those who would go against him. And then he says he will pour out his spirit on his offspring. He gives all these encouraging, comforting words. He blots out our transgressions of doing a new thing. And then he ends our section last week in verse 8. And I'll I'll read this because this goes into verse 9. Fear not, God says. Nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you, talking of Israel, those in captivity, you are my witnesses. Is there a God or a, is there any God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And I love that last line because he's saying, I'm so big and all knowing that if there were another God, I'd, I'd know it. And there's not. It's just me. But the line that you are my witnesses... <laughs> this would have brought a, a bit of scorn on the people of israel because what he's saying is that you guys will you my people israel in captivity will declare my goodness my greatness my sovereignty over all things and if we kind of reconstruct the situation i think the the people of babylon would have said really like that's the story you're sticking to that your god is more powerful we conquered you you are our slaves we tore down your temple. Like, your God's house, we, we burned it to the ground. And so all this, this promise that we see in Isaiah's oracles would have been severely questioned by um, the people in, in Babylon. And so here, verses 9 down through, really all the way down to 20, is in response to such mockery. So I'll, I'll read through this. This is a, this is a really fascinating section. It says this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Calling to to the mat. All of the craftsmen of idols. Verse twelve. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with beauty, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts, this is where it gets really sarcastic, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. (laughs) He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied, and he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, (laughs) his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. The same material that needs to be um, raised up, needs to be chopped down, needs to be shaped, can't. Uh, to, to turn and say, "Deliver me, for you are my God." is just delusion at its highest level. Verse eighteen, he explains why the why the this seems crazy to us. Verse eighteen explains their folly. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has cut their he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. In effect, this is um, this is the one of those kind of complicated sections of Scripture that talks about the hardening of someone's heart. Um, Nine times it was Pharaoh who hardened his heart, and I think it's the final time that it says God hardened it. And um, anybody a big proponent of libertarian free will? The Bible pokes fun at some of those ideas, or at least says it's not that simple in a couple of areas, and this is one of them, where God, I think, has the right to violate free will when it serves his purposes. And that freaks us out as um, the, the philosophy books will call them as um, free moral agents, that we have all the opportunities to decide when we will and when we won't. Um, comply and to force us to not comply is wrong. But in Pharaoh's heart, it was just, here's here's how um, the theologians will describe it. It ended up being a judicial hardening. Because nine times it was Pharaoh's choice to reject God's warning, his instruction. The tenth time, it was God's choice. And all of a sudden, we want to cry foul. But The judicial hardening theory of um, God's judgment is that God will actually, should you reject him so much, so much, so much, he will actually harden your heart such that you can no longer accept him as your punishment. A little bit of a, you want your way so badly, wait until I give you your way. You can't handle your way. And that ends up being the judgment. And here we see a bit of this judicial hardening. Why do they act like this? Why do idolatry... And by the way, this is not really... um, This is a slight against the Babylonian gods, but it's a slight against God's people for... um, I mean, they're in Babylon because they've chased after foreign gods. They know not, nor do they discern, for He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. But I would argue that only as his righteous judgment after they spent years, decades, generations shutting their own eyes and hardening their own hearts. He comes in and says, fine, permanently hardened. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall, fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He is saying the reason that it looks so foolish is because they truly don't understand what they're doing anymore. They're so depraved, they do not see it. And this immediately makes me think of so much of our modern culture. Um, This makes me wonder why, you know, and we can. All have personal opinions on the matter, but this makes me this helps me understand the why i 'm so frustrated with the abortion the abortion agenda. It just seems so straightforward to me that this is the taking of an innocent life, and uh, for some it 's just not that simple and I just wonder have you been Because your heart's so seared that now you're just permanently deluded in this area. That you can't even reason according to what I understand is reasonable. And and this really, not only, I mean, it doesn't give them a pass, but it helps me understand a little bit of the other side. Is that you've been so steeped in the lies for so long that you truly can't even recognize the truth anymore. And I see this in a number of areas, but abortion is kind of the one that sits most heavily on my heart. Um, anyway so this is the foolishness of idolatry and there's a lot for us to learn here about um, what happens over time in our hearts as we continue to worship our children our jobs and our things is eventually you you can't even be convinced that that's a bad thing anymore at some point you might not even be able to convince that you're doing it at all so um, I, I think it would be important for us to be as sensitive to it as we can, but to involve wise people in our lives, to involve people who will tell us when we're being foolish idolaters. And then um, I would recommend that everyone have at least a, a group of people in your life that you will just almost blindly submit to. Um, it's amazing how many people I will submit to um, so long as I agree with them but who do I have in my life that I'll give a blank check to speak wisdom into my life and I'm going to submit to them? I think it's important that we find those people that we just trust so much that when they tell us we're wrong, like our instinctive um, like next step is to just go along with them and say, I don't understand. I don't even necessarily agree with you, but I trust you so much that I'm willing to go with you this direction. I mean, I have lots of... I actually, I, I believe that with the elders. I believe that with... The guys, I believe that with a lot of people, that, you know, um, actually this was, this was a school discipleship conversation early, last week, last Tuesday night. I just said, like, if, I, if for any reason I take a stand on a position and Scott Irwin, Drew Moss, and Paul Weiss take the other side and say I'm wrong, like, take the particulars of the argument off the table, like, who's just going to assume that Ryan's wrong? Because those are three really wise men. Like, I think that Ryan should assume Ryan's wrong. When I have people that I trust saying, like, no, you don't see this, I think I need to trust the wisdom of the Spirit working through three godly men, and almost say, you guys get to outvote me on this one. Like, I don't have to understand your side before I'll follow you. And when I have those people in place, when I have that kind of willingness to submit myself to the Spirit working in other believers, I feel safer that I'm not going to just fall into idolatry and then 20 years from now turn around and realize that my heart is as seared and as black as can be. So think about who those people might be and even let them know that this is kind of your expectation. Like I I have people that I've told, when you see me doing whatever or saying whatever, uh, usually saying whatever, run my mouth a lot, like I need you to be the first person to speak up and I need you to know that I'm going to trust you. So, don't just, like, come after me willy-nilly. Like, be serious, because I'm going to believe you. Um, That's important, I think, to have those kind of people in your life, such that we don't look like these blind fools with black hearts. Okay, now he comes in, and he says, in verses 21 through 23, he says, um, this, instead of being like that, this is the posture you ought to take. And he tells... um, He tells the people of Israel, I want you to do three things. I'm going to write them down, then we'll read them. He says, I want you to first remember, and then I want you to, repent, but what's the actual word? Return. I want you to return, and then he says, I want you to sing. Let's read and see what he's calling them to do. He says in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. What are those things? I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist, which goes back to chapter 43, verse 25. He says, "Remember me." The, all of the Old Testament is this, especially the prophets, is this constant call to remember what God has done in the history of the nation. Remember me; don't forget me, and my action. And he says, "Return to me, for I have redeemed you." You could probably say, "Repent," it would be a good translation. Then he says, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So he says, remember what's going on, return, and I think the word we use now is repent of your ways. Come back to me and then sing. We can just say worship. This is kind of the the process of walking away from idolatry. We can. None of us will escape idolatry wholesale. We'll all succumb to it at some point, but he says when you do, reflect on the goodness of God, His character, what He's done in the history of salvation, and in their case, in the history of Israel, repent of your ways, and repentance always, by the way, entails um, obedience. Obedience. And then, Worship. And worship is not only praise, it's also proclamation. Or preaching, or just telling people what God has done. When we reflect on what God has done and who He is, we can then repent. And when we can repent, we can worship. When we worship, that looks like talking about it, which, by the way, is a helpful way of of letting other people remember who God is. This can be a pretty beautiful cycle of walking away from idolatry. So, he says, this is what I expect from you. And then he explains how he's going to, in essence, make this happen in their case. And this is where you get the, the great prophecy of King Cyrus. So, verse, uh, well, verse 24 all the way down through forty-five eight tells of God calling his shot, what he's going to do with King Cyrus. Um, I'll read some of this, but not all of it. 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Again, calling it back to the fact that you guys don't chase idols that you can make. Remember who made you. It's almost like whoever is the maker is actually the one in control. Remember the, the true maker. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Um, we talked last week about developing a biblical imagination and looking for these allusions to great Old Testament accounts. obviously an allusion here to Genesis 1 and 2, to God stringing the heavens out who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. We're seeing here in a complete authority over all things, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Remember, Jerusalem is a smoking, smoldering wasteland at this point with a small colony of people that still live there. But by and large, Completely insignificant on the world stage. Temple has been destroyed. Um, just a, a backwater outpost by now. She shall be inhabited, and the cities with Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus? Again, Cyrus is not the king in Babylon yet. This is a prophetic move. Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Okay? If you want to see how this actually works itself out, if you, uh, the book of Chronicles is likely the last book of the Old Testament that was written. So it's fascinating to see what was the last uh, little bit that was written down before we move into the New Testament. Isaiah would have been written in the 800s. BC Chronicles will probably be written in the four hundreds ish. And look how Chronicles ends. Second Chronicles 36. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah also prophesied to these things. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this isn't even Babylon anymore. Persia's taken over. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. So we're talking a prophecy that not only points to a new king, but a new fundamental civilization. <clears throat> Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, by the way, that's all caps, so Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms Of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up, and then he sends people back. So, this prophecy is affirmed Um, many, many years later. You wonder how the Israelites read it the first time, how they heard this and said, That seems specific and crazy that you would use a pagan ruler as your instrument. Calls him his shepherd. Which is mildly offensive, but wait, there's more. Verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. The word there is, thus says Yahweh to his Messiah, Cyrus. whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now, before we go in and describe what he's going to have Cyrus do, just imagine how crazy this would have sounded to Israel. They've already spent all their time in captivity wondering if their disobedience has nullified the Abrahamic covenant, if they are no longer people who will receive God's blessing. They are a people without a king, likely wondering if God's promises to the throne of David are now null and void as well. And then he comes in and says, and this pagan ruler is going to be your Messiah. What? And you'll see as this chapter finishes out that they refuse to believe him. They refuse to believe that God would do this. How could God do this? Which I keep going back to to hope. Directing our, our biblical imaginations to the book of Job, where we just get this beautiful lesson on the foolishness of questioning God when he says, this is what I'm going to do. Or telling God, this is why you should do something. The Davidic throne is certainly in question. And now we see Cyrus called the Anointed One. Um, it's also important for us to remember that this might be even be more offensive to us as New Testament, um, as people post-New Testament who have associated the word Messiah with Jesus specifically. Um, Israel likely didn't really have a concept of a divine Messiah. So we look at this in blasphemy. They would have said, no, our throne. Psalm 2, after all, is where you see the anointed one. This is, it's actually a, a pretty powerful psalm in terms of messianic fulfillment. Um, starts out, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying. And then it goes in all of these things. And you see the messianic prophecies. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, none of this was written to Jesus or about Jesus specifically. Jesus takes it on Himself and reinterprets it. This was all about David. So this is what they thought of as the anointed one. David and those who come from David's line, those who sit on the throne of Israel. So if I'm, if I'm sitting in Babylon and I'm hearing about this king who's going to one day come from a pagan nation and be my new messiah, like I'm doubting God's goodness because I feel like maybe he's just relegated us to being slaves of a foreign power forever. Like This is the, this is the real hopeful thing. I'm going to go be some... Uh, subject of a foreign king? What about David? What about the promise you made to him? All in question. You see, they, they do not get it. God keeps saying, He says that He's going to uh, work through Cyrus in three main ways. First of all, verse 2. I will go before you and level the exalted places. This is the section where God says, here's the first way it's going to work out. I'm going to be the agent of restoration. It's going to be my power on display. Cyrus is not the impressive one. It's my agency. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name, saying, I'm going to do this so that you'll know it's me. He's really obsessed with who gets the glory. And that's okay. Verse 4, second thing he says, I'm going to do this for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. All throughout Isaiah we see this beautiful interplay of a jealous, righteous God who will judge fiercely and yet has incredible degrees of compassion for his people, love for his people. But what did he say back in um, verse Chapter 43, probably the most tender words you'll see regarding God's interaction with uh, Israel. Chapter 43, verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Some of the most incredible words of affection that God has for really rebellious people. And then he comes in and he says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen I call you by your name I name you though you do not know me Isn't that amazing like I you are mine even though you do not and that's that's kind of a slight even though you refuse to know me is probably a better way of saying it I am the Lord and there is no other besides me there is no god I equip you though you do not know me Mercy. then he gives the third thing so first he says it's going to be by my own power second it's going to be for your sake because I love you and then third verse 6 that people may know from the rising of the sun so that would be the east and from the west that there is none besides me so that the nations may know I'm going to work through Cyrus to redeem, restore my people back to the promised land I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. Again, here's another Genesis 1, very, very clear allusion to who is the maker of all things. goes back to the end of chapter 44, which contrasts the true maker with those who would fashion things out of wood. I make well-being and create calamity. (laughs) I am the Lord who does all these things. And then there's this call to praise. And again, another Genesis allusion. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. And if you were go back and read the actual creation account and how these things took place, lots of language there that's being used. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. He has created, this is an, a, a passage where um, I really appreciate the, the righteous given to us in Jesus because we see we have two examples here that the God, righteousness is such a commodity in his perfect hands that he can make the clouds rain it down, that he can burst open the earth and salvation and righteousness just bloom. Um, It's pretty incredible to think, and that should also really help us understand that there isn't anyone beyond his scope, beyond his reach, no one so dark or broken or even, blind or with hardened hearts to such a degree that he can't rain down righteousness and let it grow up from the ground. But Israel doesn't believe him. Again, I believe they're hung up on Cyrus. Cyrus. They're hung up on this foreign Messiah. Verse 9. But woe to him who strives with him who formed him. (laughs) This is like, cursed be you who would fight against me on this. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? A reference to Romans 9. Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? It's three examples of having the cart before the horse. Three examples of who do you think you are to talk to me like this, to question me. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? He's calling to to attention their arrogance to question him. I made the earth and created man in it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, speaking of Cyrus, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. I'm just going to make him do it. Back to 2 Chronicles 36. How does it describe him doing it? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. No one paid him. He wasn't conquered. The spirit was stirred up. Just like God said he would back here in Isaiah 45. And then 45 ends with this chapter, this dialogue with, uh, between Isaiah and God. And Isaiah articulates some of the frustrations that people have to, to God. So God says to Israel in verse 14, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. Talking about this future era of blessing for them. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides Him. And Isaiah says this, Truly you are a God who hides Himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. In effect, he's saying, what you're talking about is so bizarre. We can't even understand you. You are so mysterious. You are so hidden. You'll see that God doesn't really agree with that. But He says, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idol, idols go in confusion together. So his questions now turn to praise. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Saying, like, we don't understand what you're doing, yet you are clearly superior to these idols that our people have been worshiping. God continues For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it, and He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret, Isaiah. In a land of darkness, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, "Seek me in vain." He says, "I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right." So Isaiah, a little bit of a you know what kids like to say is, "I didn't hear you." He's like, "No, you heard me. You just ignored me." <laughs> Isaiah starts to kind of go that route, and God says, "No, I spoke clearly." After all, I speak truth. I declare what is right. And then you see the lawsuit motif come back in. As, he, as God is being questioned by Isaiah, you see him start to question them in turn. He says, "'Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case.'" Let them take counsel together. God says, I dare you to question me. Question the sufficiency of my revelation. Actually, you can learn a lot here about the, the, um, the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of God's written word and the sufficiency of His testimony as the Spirit bears witness to the church. To say, well, I just need more. I just need more. I did. You, what you said wasn't clear. What you said wasn't helpful. Like that is an unbelievably arrogant position to take before an all-knowing God, who will say, "No, I spoke truth. You didn't listen." Declare and present your case. He says, "Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord?" And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So they raise an accusation against him. God responds and accuses them. Now he gives them instructions. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Again, we see the Gentile inclusion way back here in Isaiah. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. There is no greater name for him to swear by other than his own. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or you might hear it, every tongue shall confess. Paul quotes this in Romans 14 and he, um, he rebrands it for Jesus in Philippians 2. Which is, this is a clear, anyone who wants to continue this silliness that Paul did not view Jesus as God, but as some prophetic messianic figure alone, Ephesians 2 is the death blow to that silliness. Because this is talking about God, the Greatest name, the only one that he can swear by, the one to the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then we go to Philippians two. I'm just going to read it. Can't, can't not read it. Philippians two. Oh, I want to read all of it, but I'll read just less of it. Hmm. I know you are Anthony. I'll start in verse 8. And being found in human form, referencing Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. What's the name that's above every name? Yahweh. Yahweh. This is one of the most clear references that Jesus and Yahweh are the same. lost my spot. Just a second. Yep. So that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh equals Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Um, and Paul pulls that from Isaiah 45 and reapplies it to Jesus. In Isaiah 45, it's not referencing the Messiah. It's a very clear reference to God himself. In Romans 14, Paul picks it up, quotes it, and then Philippians 2, he reinterprets it as a Text about Jesus himself. Now, before we go and think that this means that eventually everyone's going to swear allegiance to Jesus and that we're going to have some universal heaven, it just means that 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 Jesus will be recognized for who he is, whether in allegiance or in opposition. Um, Every every God hater I know will like Jesus will get the last laugh, and eventually they'll bow that knee once, and then it's over. that's what that text means. It doesn't mean like a universal salvation. Back to Isaiah 45, verse 24. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness. This is Isaiah summarizing everything. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, Isaiah says, our righteousness and strength. He says, my only goodness and my only strength come from God himself. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So this is a sweeping two chapters that goes from the foolishness of idolatry to God rightfully vindicating his name over and against all idols and that righteousness can only be found in him. Um. This is a great reminder of, I I wrote on your summary, who history's true sovereign is. These two chapters just go out of their way to describe God's sovereignty over all things. And I want us to finish our last few moments because I want to be out of here in time to let the next class come in. um, Talking about a lifestyle that is ever moving towards worship. Um, I'm convinced that everything we do say, um, everything, tells me something about like, what we care about. So I care about my job, I care about my family, I care about lots of things. Um, I care about, show me your hobbies and I can really see what you care about. Um, and therefore, what you like, discuss the most can be really telling about what you feel is worthy of worship. What are you, what or whose worth are you constantly declaring? Um, Is it success? Is it your boss? Is it your spouse? Is it your hobbies? Like, what is it that you do that tells everybody what you really care about? And I'm not saying that it means we don't have any of those things. But this text really calls us to put them in their rightful place. And recognize that everything really is an act of worship. If I, if I have a new hobby or whatever, or a book, I can get this way about book. Um, if I won't stop talking about it, I wish somebody would tell me to stop talking about it. Like, wow, quit worshiping that book. Like, you're, uh, I have a lot of little gospels about things that aren't the gospel. Let me tell you some good news about such and such. Or a show on Netflix. I can become the world's greatest apologist for a show on Netflix. Or uh, Amazon Prime. By the way, Justified, one of my favorite shows of all time. So I can go on the Justified Gospel. And um, it's amazing how I don't really come to this, or I have a harder time coming to this with such vigor and such excitement. So what do I do to move my heart towards worshiping the truths I find in here, the God I find in here. I think it's what Isaiah, well, God through Isaiah told us to do. To always be in a position where you're reflecting on God's goodness and what He's done and always be in a position where you're willing to challenge yourself and repent and change when necessary and always be in a position to declare, worship, sing... Praise God for His goodness that He would even be so kind as to reveal Himself to you and then challenge you to repent and get in line with Him and His mission. And, probably, and, and I suck at doing that by myself. That's why I've got to have people around me that can help me do that. That's why I need trusted people that have blank checks to speak truth in my life who I'm not allowed to argue with. And if you guys know me very well, that, that's really hard for me to do. I love to debate. I will defend Things I don't care about. My, I'll tell you guys this. This, is, this should tell you how hard it can be for me to do this. So I, a few presidential elections ago, I just came out of the voting booth, and my wife had much stronger opinions than I did. And um, I don't even think I voted for the president. I think I voted for everything else. But I just, as a joke, told her I voted for the guy she hated. And she got so mad at me for doing that And I became so mad that she was mad at me that I just let the lie go on all day long. (laughs) Just completely undid her day because I just wanted to argue. And I thought, how dare you get mad at me for voting? And So that was a little awkward dinner when I told her. Actually, I didn't vote for anybody. You drove me crazy. So I thought, I have a right to defend myself. But So it it can be really hard um, to just submit and say, no, I'm not going to argue with you. But I, I I would recommend that we all have someone in our lives with whom we almost never argue. I'm going to trust you. Uh, if you need some guys, um, the elders are a good place to start. Like, um, I wouldn't pick your dad because we enjoy arguing so much. But that's where it's even helpful to have people that are different than me. Like, Scott's temperament is so different than me, um, than mine. And so Scott and I, like, I really can, like, Trust that Scott's not gonna just debate to debate. Like when he speaks, it's gonna be like out uh, of genuine care and compassion. And and Jim and I have a personality that's too similar. We'll just like to fight. Uh, but Scott, Paul, Drew Henderson, another guy who's a lot different than I am, and people that I trust. And when they say, dude, you're wrong, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm gonna ask Scott. And he says, Yeah, you're wrong. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess that settles it. I don't agree, and I really don't see how. But I don't think the three of you together would get this wrong. So I have to be the ones wrong. So that brings me to the repent stage, which hopefully I'll get to the worship stage and tell you guys how I was wrong and how they were right. Okay, that is all I got. I did my job to get us done early. Any last thoughts, though? I I don't want us to just run past all this stuff. We will be moving into the servant songs um, next week. Well, the second one. Hope already took the first one. So you, You're welcome, Mike. You. Um, in case I forgot, I don't remember if I told you guys or not, Mark did win. We are going to study Mark in um, starting in January. Um, we'll probably be in it all semester. I bet it takes us through May. because It's the shortest gospel, but they're long chapters. So. We will be studying the gospel of Mark, one by one vote, so that should teach you guys voting matters, kind of, unless you live in Oklahoma, then voting really doesn't matter. Okay, let me pray, and then we will, we will hang it up, and you guys got plenty of time before the next service, but again, I want to let the membership class come in. Father, you are good, and you are kind enough to reveal yourself to us, and you are kind enough to make righteousness and salvation available to even those who have spent far too long rebelling against you, questioning you, and making little idols with our hands. And so I, I am grateful for your almost un, unceasing patience and for your obvious love and compassion for your creation. So I pray that you would communicate those truths about you to us in ways that would affect change in our lives, in ways that would bring about repentance, and in ways that would bring us to the point where we love to talk about these things with other people. I pray that in us, others would get to experience the goodness of who you are. And remind us that when Isaiah talks about all the nations, that we are in that mission. And I pray that we would do as best as we possibly can to submit to you and to submit to your spirit in others. Teach us to, to long for these things and to, um, to be okay with them. In Jesus' name, amen.